Well, we began looking through Paul's letter to the Colossians back in April of this year, and now at last we have come to the last section. And I want to say, if we're not careful, what we could end up doing with these final verses in the letter to Colossians is sort of what we do towards the end of a movie, right? It could feel like what we do when you come to the end of a movie. And what I mean by that is when you watch a movie, everyone watches it to the end, but no one watches it to the end end. Right, Because as soon as the movie is over, what comes up? You get the credits. And as soon as the credits come, that's your cue to get up and leave. Because now you've got this list of names, and it's sort of the here's who brought this movie to you. Here's the people who played a part in bringing this film to you. And that's fine and good, but those names have nothing to do with you. And so the credits are your cue to get up. Which is why, by the way, more and more filmmakers now do what? They embed scenes and snapshots and bloopers and outtakes and, and, and music videos towards the end of the credits all throughout to somehow get you to stay to the end end, right? Things that you'd otherwise miss to get you to stay all the way to the end. Well, that's what this final section of Colossians can feel like. Because when you get to the end, and by that I mean the end end of Colossians, you get a list of names. Names like Tychicus and Aristarchus, and Demas, and Nympha. Names you can hardly pronounce, let alone sit through the reading of, and then try and fight through, what does any of that have to do with me? Right, that's the question. What do these names have to do with me? And so this can be your cue to sort of tune out. You listen to Paul all the way to the end, but you're not sure you can hang with him all the way to the end end of the letter. So here's what I want to do. This morning, I want to give you some snapshots and some scenes, and I want to embed some things into this section so that you might stay with Paul to the end end, right? God has included this section, even this section, in his word for a reason. And God tells us all scripture, all scripture, even Colossians 4, 7 to 18, is profitable to us and useful for us. And so there's a reason why God has put this in his word. And I want you to hear that though this passage can initially feel like it's totally irrelevant, exactly the opposite is the case, right? We're a church. That's what we gather here week in and week out as. That's what we live our lives as. That means that as a people, we are committed to doing God's work. We're committed to doing God's ministry in the world. That's why we exist. And this passage is going to tell us actually how God's work gets done. And who gets God's work done? And to what end God's work gets done? In fact, I think that we could sort of summarize the entire sort of idea of this passage in one sentence. And what I want to do is, this morning, build that sentence out with you. Right? I think this whole section can be summarized in one sentence. And throughout this sermon, I want to sort of build that sentence with you. So let me pray for a moment, and then we'll ask God to... Help us consider this final section of Colossians. Our Father, we pause to turn our eyes to you as both the one who speaks and the one who hears now, so that in both regards you might help us. As those who hear, we pray now for our eyes to see what your word has for us, ears to hear it, hearts to believe it, minds to understand it, and a life to obey it. We pray from my mouth that it would hug tightly to your word, 
that it wouldn't spout out anything that a man has to say, but would proclaim what God has to say. And we pray in that it would all be for your glory and our good and the good of the city and the world that you've called us to. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Brett read this passage for us. I'm going to just read it once more so that it's fresh in your ears. Hear it again. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Here's the first thing that I want you to see from this passage, and that is that God's work is done by a team. What should be obvious as you read this list of names is that there's a team here. And the sort of obvious thing I want to just point out to you is God's work is done by a team. Many have rightly said that what this section is, is sort of like a group photo, as if Paul got his entire ministry team together and took a snapshot and a Polaroid for us to see. And before I introduce you to the members of that team, I want you to just pay attention to that for a second. Take that in for a second. That is that Paul did God's work by being a part of a team, right? Paul, missionary church planter extraordinaire author of just about most of the New Testament, that all the fruit that was born out of Paul's life and gospel ministry came because he linked arms with people, people who had names, people who had stories, people who weren't as famous or well-known as Paul, but those people are the ones that bore all the fruit that came out of Paul's life and ministry. In fact, if you read through the New Testament... Commentators tell us you get about a hundred names at least, around a hundred names or so of people that Paul had individually built relationships with in the course of gospel ministry. Here itself, you get ten names. And so what I want to do is I want to introduce you, I want to let you see this group picture and introduce you to the members of the team, and I want to give you scenes and snapshots that would get you to stay with me to the end end. Right? He, he says, for example, there's Tychicus. He says, our beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you at Colossae so that he could fill you in on what's going on here. He could let you know of all the things God's doing even while we're sitting in this prison. And that he might encourage your heart. Now, 
Tychicus is sort of Paul's utility player, right? M meaning wherever you need him to be, he'll be. Whatever you need him to do, he'll do. He's the epitome of a utility player. For, for example, back in the 90s, there was a guy named Tony Phillips who was a baseball player. And Tony Phillips was the utility player, meaning when you needed him to play second base, Tony Phillips played second base. When you needed him to play shortstop, he started at shortstop. Third base, no problem, third base. Outfield, he played the outfield. He started games in sort of every position. You need him to hit DH, he's going to hit DH for you. Well, that's what Tychicus is. Paul, tell me where Jesus needs me. Tell me where the team needs me. I'm ready. I'm in. So when Paul needs to travel from Macedonia all the way to Jerusalem to drop off a gift for the saints who are struggling there and need financial help, and in the day before planes, trains, and automobiles, in the day when now I've got to make this trek by foot, who's going to kiss their family goodbye and say goodbye to their job and go on this dangerous voyage with Paul. Take a kiss, raise his hand, I'm in. Or when Paul writes to Titus and he says, look, it's winter here, would you come here? Well, if Titus comes from the island of Crete, who's going to be interim pastor and help out in Crete? Tychicus, uh, I'm in, I'll, I'll do that. And so Paul says, I'll, I'll perhaps send Tychicus to you. Or then when he's at the end of his life in 2 Timothy, and now this old man is getting ready to die, and he writes to his son in the faith, Timothy, his beloved one, like he has no other, and he says, would you come with me? Well, who's going to cover Timothy's pulpit in Ephesus? Guess who Paul sends except Tychicus? When you need him to be pulpit supply or interim pastor, when you need him to, to, to fill in in whatever way you need him, he, here he is. And, and here in Colossians 4, when Paul needs someone, get this, to travel from Rome where he's locked up in prison, and that is walk across Italy by foot, travel no less than two different sails, then drop off a letter to the city of Ephesus, as it says in Ephesians 6, verses 21 and 22, and then walk 120 miles by foot to drop off two more letters, one to Colossae and one to Philemon, hand-given hand personally. Who's going to make that voyage? Tychicus. Right? Because essentially that's what he is here in chapter 4. Tychicus is now a mailman. That's what he is. He has, and would you get this for a second? Paul gives him three original New Testament letters. You know what we have in the Bible is copies of copies of copies of copies of copies, and it's wonderful. But could you imagine holding in your hand the original New Testament letters, the inspired, inerrant, flawless, perfect word of God? And thank God for that faithful mailman. That no task for the gospel or for the team was beneath him. But because he was faithful in his work as a mailman, you and I have these letters preserved in our book. Because Tychicus took that trip. And he went across Italy by foot. And traveled those two sails. Uh, 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 those two journeys by sail. And then walked that 120 miles after getting to Ephesus to drop these letters off. How wonderful it is that you have what Paul says, a faithful servant, a beloved brother, a fellow minister. Paul, you need me to carry bags while you head to Jerusalem to drop off a gift? No problem. 
Paul, you need me to cover Timothy's pulpit in Ephesus? No problem. Paul, you need me to be interim pastor in Crete for Titus? When do I go? Paul, you need me to drop off mail and encourage the church in Colossae that Jesus is enough, and if they have Jesus, they have everything they need, and remind them of the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. When do I leave? Every ministry would be blessed to have a ticket, a utility player, a faithful minister, a solid brother who is ready and willing to serve the team and serve Jesus however is needed. And taking the trip with Tychicus, Paul says, is Onesimus, verse 9, right? Because he says, and with him I'm sending Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. Now, two weeks ago, we spent some time talking about Onesimus, and so I won't belabor that here. But if you remember, Onesimus was Philemon's runaway slave. Philemon, the rich, wealthy, influential member at the church of Colossae, in all likelihood the church met in his home. That Philemon, who Onesimus probably stole some money from and ran away. Now, if you're Philemon or if you're a member at Colossae, what are you thinking? We're never seeing that brother again, right? That brother is gone. We are never seeing that guy again. Can you imagine what it was like to watch Philemon Uh, to watch Onesimus come back? Could you imagine the church gathered and one sort of nudging the other and going, is that Onesimus? What's he doing here? And then as this letter is read, as one nudges the other and going, is Onesimus a Christian? And another going, no, is Onesimus in ministry now? Is, Is useless Onesimus, and remember, if you remember, his name was useful. Is useless Onesimus finally... Onesimus, is he useful? And not just that, useful to who? He's Paul's minister? He's useful to the apostle? Could you imagine what it did in the church at Colossae when this teammate came back? And and what's interesting, I think you should know, is that Paul says, Tychicus is our servant. Later he'll say, Epaphras is our servant. But he doesn't use that title with Onesimus. And I wonder if it's almost him telling the Colossian church, Listen, listen, though you can see the other guys that way, that's not how I want you to see Onesimus anymore. I want you to see him as a beloved brother because that's what the entire letter to Philemon is all going to be about. See this boy, receive this man now as a brother. And as we said two weeks ago, some church traditions have it that this Onesimus becomes a bishop in the early church. Um, Just wonder at that that the most unlikely are swept up into God's work, made a part of God's team. What a wonder the thought that God doesn't hold your past against you, but that this man would stand forever as a testimony to a God of second chances. Onesimus is on the team. Imagine hand-delivering a letter from the Apostle Paul with Tychicus is Onesimus. Or then there's Aristarchus in verse 10. Paul says, also, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. When I think of Aristarchus, I think of sort of the muscle of the team, right? In, in every movie where there's this band of guys, there's always the guy who's like six foot tall. He never says anything, but he's just rock solid, hard, and tough. That's what I picture Aristarchus. I picture six foot four, 260 pounds, tattoos all over his body. Because 
Aristarchus is with Paul in ministry through thick and thin. Back in Acts, when Paul is preaching in Ephesus, and a riot breaks out, and they're going to grab Paul, and they're going to drag whoever's with Paul into the middle of the theater, and riot is breaking out. Who are they grabbing by the neck? Aristarchus. And then in Acts 27, when Paul sets off to Rome, and while he's on this ship, a great storm breaks out. I mean, not a normal storm. So much so the text says, for days they didn't see the sun or the moon or the stars. It was just water and darkness. The entire ship gets wrecked. And now Paul is literally floating in the middle of the sea. And who's there floating with him? Aristarchus. And now here, of course, where else would you expect him? Paul's in prison, so guess where Aristarchus is? Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Right? Paul, you need me to wear riot gear? I'm in. Paul, you need me to put on a life vest because we're going to float in the middle of the sea? All right. Paul, we're going to sort of clink chains together because we're both going to be in prison. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. We can keep going. From there, Paul mentions Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, and Luke, the beloved physician. And I want you to know, this is Mark who wrote the gospel with his name, the letter, the gospel of Mark. This is Luke who wrote the gospel with his name, Luke, and then also would write the Acts of the Apostles. I mean, between the three of them, you're literally talking about most of the New Testament. I mean, what would it be like when the three of them are hanging out together? You know, back in the day, there was this literary group called the Inklings. And in it was C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, and they would sit around. And I used to just imagine, what would it be like to have those kinds of giants sitting in a room together? What would it be like for Paul and Mark and Luke to sit around and swap stories about Jesus? Wouldn't you want to just be a fly on the wall in that conversation as the three of them are sharing stories with one another of what they saw and heard and experienced from Jesus Christ. Paul is running with a crew of legends here, of heavy hitters, of, of gospel beasts and monsters for Christ. Now we could fly through some more of these names. Right then we're told there's Jesus. Not that Jesus. And so Paul has to say, we ended up calling him Justice, right? In fact, the only thing you're told about him is that we had to give that guy a nickname. And you can sort of imagine how confusing otherwise it would be, right? They're sitting together, Paul and Mark and Luke are, are sitting together and they're praying and they're going, oh Jesus, come. And this guy shows up and they go, no, not you, right? And, and after being disappointed so many times, they finally go, we got to give you a nickname. And so they go, Jesus called justice. That's all you know about him. Except also in verse 11 that he is one of Paul's fellow workers for the kingdom of God and he's been a comfort to me. Think of that. I, I don't know what the guy did. But his, but his name is forever in the New Testament as just a fellow worker, a brother who brought comfort to Paul. And we could keep going. There's Epaphras who we'll talk about in a few minutes. The church planter. Remember him? From chapter 1, we remember that Paul didn't plant Colossae. Epaphras, one of Paul's likely disciples in the ministry, planted a, a Colossae. And also planted the church at Laodicea and Hierapolis. I mean, this brother had planted three churches, and he was laboring for these people. And Paul names Demas, a man we'll talk about as well. But what I want you to see is there's scenes 
and snapshots here, brothers and sisters, that would make you want to stay through the credits. To get to the end, end. And if you make it to the end, end, you'll see that God's work is done by a team. But what you'll also see in this section is that this team is diverse. And so here's the second part of that sentence I want to build out. This passage is teaching us that God's work is done by a team of diverse people. That's what you'll also notice in this list. If you get to the end end, you'll see God has assembled here the most unlikely crew of people. People who are incredibly diverse. Incredibly diverse ethnically and socially and religiously and racially in every way in their backgrounds. God has assembled sort of this ragtag bunch together. Aristarchus is Greek. Tychicus is Asian. Epaphras is from Turkey. And we could keep going through the list. Or think that nine of the people listed out of the ten are men. But then you've got this woman named Nympha. And isn't that a wonderful thing? She's not on the sidelines watching the men do Christian ministry. Greet Nympha and the church that meets at her house. Isn't that a wonderful thought? That the same Jesus who, when he was doing ministry and, and they had to feed the multitudes and, well, you don't have enough, well, here's, here's five loaves and two fish. Could you do something with that? Could you imagine Nympha going up to the Apostle Paul? I can't preach. I'm not a great worship leader, but I've got a living room. Could you use that? And now the church, probably at Laodicea, meets in her house. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Or in Acts 16, it's a similar thing with this woman named Lydia. She comes to know the Lord, and the church at Philippi is born in her house. And so this team gathers at Nympha's house. Or then even think through the callings of these people. You have full-time ministry, professional clergy folks, and you've got folks with just normal jobs. Right? You've got Paul, the apostle. You've got Mark, the gospel writer. But you've got Onesimus, the servant slave. You've got Luke, the doctor, the physician. And, and all of them are pulled into gospel ministry. You've got upper class and lower class, white collar and blue collar. You've got Aristarchus, Mark, and Justin, verse 11. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they've been a comfort for me. That's Paul's way of saying these men are of the circumcision, meaning these three are Jewish. These three brothers are Jewish. The rest of my team is Gentile. And if you know any background in the New Testament, you know Gentile and Jew together is oil and water. You can imagine the differences and difficulties that come from that, and yet that's what God assembles together in this team. This team cuts across gender differences and ethnic differences and religious differences and socioeconomic differences and the gospel brings together this wonderfully eclectic team of men and women, of Jews and Gentiles, an upper-class doctor, a no-class slave, they're all in. So if you're here and there's a part of you wondering, I don't know if I'm the type to be a Christian or certainly to be in ministry, to do gospel work or to be swept up into God's work, this passage would say there are no types. Are you the men or women type? Then you're the type. Are you the upper class or lower class type? The white collar or blue collar type? Are you the educated or uneducated type? Are you the Asian or European or Middle Eastern type? Well, any of those would be the type. 
the team is saying, that God assembles together to do his work. Right? Are you, are you wondering, what role could I possibly have in gospel ministry, in God's work? Well, if you get to the end end, this passage is saying, well, God's work requires pastors and church planters, like Paul and Epaphras. But it also requires doctors, like Luke, or servants, like Onesimus, or mailmen, like Tychicus, or people with living rooms, like Nympha, or people who bring comfort, like Justice, or people who just hang in there, like Aristarchus. The question, Seven Mile Road, if you'll look around, is not what role could I possibly play, but are you ready to roll up your sleeves and get to work? Because you're exactly the type that God uses for his work. And if you look around, would you begin to be encouraged and thank God that he has assembled a diverse team of people to get his work done? So perhaps the question you might even begin to ask yourself, or ask God rather, is God, what do you want me to do? What role do you want me to play? I'm ready. What we learn from the passage is God, his work is done by a team of diverse people. But there's a third thing as we build out this sentence. And that is that this team, the passage shows us, is not perfect, but flawed. And so here's what I want to add there. That God's work is done by a team of diverse, flawed people. See, when you think of Paul and Mark and Luke hanging out together, you sort of picture this team of legends and giants. And I want you to know, if you get to the end end, what you'll see is this team, like all ministry teams, was filled with flaws. It wasn't perfect. In fact, Paul's ministry team had some serious and significant disappointments and struggles. For example, you, you remember Mark, verse 10. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Well, Colossians 4 isn't the first time you meet Mark in the scriptures. In fact, the gospel of Mark isn't the first time you meet Mark in the scriptures. The first time he really shows up in his narrative is back in Acts 13. And in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas, this dynamic duo, I mean, you could, it, this was Batman and Robin. This was this perfect team. You'd have just hoped they would do ministry forever. And you can imagine what God would have done through them. Paul and Barnabas are going from city to city. They're proclaiming the word of God. Well, Mark, Barnabas' cousin, joins them. Except as Paul and Barnabas go from place to place, when the going gets tough, Mark gets going. He goes AWOL. He literally deserts them in the mission. I mean, you can imagine that, right? If, if we sent over a missions team to Africa, and in the middle of a two-week trip, one of the guys books his ticket back home, goes, you guys can keep going, but I'm done. I'm going to go back to my mom's house, which is what we think Mark did. Right? Goes back so that the next time now in Acts 15, that doesn't really sit well with Paul. Right? Paul is getting his bags packed to get another trip going. Right? In fact, let me read you this. Acts 15, verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. 
And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Do you catch the scene? Paul says, hey Barnabas, let's go back and visit all those brothers and disciples that we've made in the Lord, see how they're doing. And Barnabas goes, great, Mark is almost finished packing, let me just go grab him and we'll go. And Paul goes, Mark, you got to be kidding me. You didn't just say Mark. I don't need to remind you that the last time we were out there, Mark packed his bags a little early and left. There is no way we're risking that again. That brother is not coming. To which Barnabas says, yes, he is. To which Paul says, no, he's not. And that went back and forth a bit. So much so that a sharp disagreement arose between them so that Batman and Robin went two separate ways. Because Barnabas took his cousin and went on and Paul took Silas and went on. Don't you love that the Bible doesn't hide that? That the Bible says, yes, post Jesus' death and resurrection, post the Spirit filling us, post Christians with the fruit of the Spirit and all of it, doesn't mean there won't be difficulties, conflict, significant conflict between those who love the Lord. And the Scripture doesn't go, and Barnabas started worshiping the devil after that. Right? The brother's a Christian, and Paul's a Christian, and they keep doing gospel ministry and gospel work. And in God's sovereignty, actually great things happen. But from this no small disagreement over who? Over Mark. Well, then the wonder of the thought that 11 or 12 years later, Paul is writing from Rome in his prison and he says, by the way, Mark says hello. And if you're wondering which Mark, that's right, Barnabas' cousin Mark says hello. And you've received instruction. If he comes, make sure that you greet him. Now, what happened in those 11 and 12 years between get rid of Mark to Mark says hello? And what we think happened is that Mark, young Mark, comes in contact with Peter. In fact, in 1 Peter 5, Peter will sign off in his own letter. And he says, also, I want you to know, Mark, my son. Barnabas' cousin, my son, says hello as well. And so you can almost imagine that Mark comes under Peter. And, and if you could picture it, you can almost hear Peter going, you deserted Jesus? I know what that's like. You bailed on Jesus? Come, let me talk with you. Brother, there is still a future despite your failures, because I could tell you about that. And Peter took this young man under his wing. And under his influence, Mark writes his gospel Matthew and Luke look to Mark and his gospel as a source even for their own writings. And so much so that by the end of Paul's old life, would you hear what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4 verse 11? He says this, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Isn't that awesome? At the end of his life, he's writing 2 Timothy, he's going to die, Luke alone is with me, he says, Timothy, make sure you get Mark and bring him to, because he is very useful for me in ministry. Aren't you so glad that the team has room for flawed people? Aren't you so glad 
That as one pastor said, God makes a future despite our failures. Aren't you so glad that if you're sitting here wondering, have I messed up too much to be used by God? Blown it. Can God use someone with such a checkered past even as mine? Then this team passage would tell you, go ask Peter. Go ask Mark. God has pulled together a team of diverse, flawed people to get his work done. I want you to know also, there's a name in the list that also serves as a warning to us as well. As we think of disappointments and difficulties in Paul's team. In fact, in verse 14, you'll notice just a name. And also with Luke, Demas. What do we know about him? What we know about him is he starts off great and Demas will be for us a reminder that it doesn't just matter how you start on the team, but how you finish. Because when Demas is introduced, he starts out great. He's with Paul in that jail prison or nearby in Rome. Then when he's introduced in Philemon, Paul says of him, my fellow worker. He starts out great. But I want you to hear how Paul sees him in the end in 2 Timothy 4. Here's what Paul says. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. And unlike Mark, you don't read of any return for Demas. It's just a chilling reminder that this brother was with Paul, saw him in prison, watched him write those letters, saw gospel ministry, and by the end, in love with the present world, deserted Jesus and the ministry. Just a chilling reminder that it's not just how we start, but how we finish that matters. And yet, despite the warning that we heed, isn't it amazing that God's work gets done despite failures, despite flawed people, and despite even phonies who may be on the team for a season, God's work still gets done. But here's the last thing that we'll see if we get to the end end, and this is the last part of the sentence that I want us to build out. And that is that God's work is done by a team of diverse, flawed people who labor to see others mature in Christ. If you want to know where is all of this going, where's all these prisons and these letters and these efforts and these prayers and this ministry, what's the end to which it's all pointing? It's seeing others mature in Christ. All this labor is getting at one thing, which is to see others mature in Christ. God's work is done by a diverse team of flawed people who labor to see others mature in Christ. If you want to know what's all of this work for, I think it's seen best in just this one guy, Epaphras. Epaphras could be a summary of what the whole team is getting after. Epaphras is a summary of all their ministry and what it's about. In fact, it's a summary even for Paul of what Paul's ministry is about. Look at what it says of Epaphras in verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling. The word there is agonizing and wrestling, always laboring for you on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. I mean, just imagine how hard you have to be working for Paul to go, I can testify that brother is working hard. Right? Paul is no stranger to hard work. 
I mean, Paul works as hard as any human being has ever worked. And for him to go, I can testify to you that Epaphras is breaking a sweat for you. And to what end? All this laboring, all this hard work, all this agonizing, all this struggling is to see you mature in Christ. Standing in the will of God, fully assured, so that when these people are coming to you, Colossae, and saying, Jesus is good, but he's not enough, and you've got to add something to Jesus, and here's how you become varsity Christian. I am on my knees by Paul's prison cell, laboring for you, that you might, in the end, stand mature in Christ. Now, I want you to know, it's the exact same thing that Paul said. If you remember back in chapter 1, Paul described his ministry. And would you hear what he says in verse 28 and 29? Same thing. He says, him we proclaim, that's Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, what? That we might present everyone mature in Christ. For this, for what? For presenting everyone mature in Christ, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Here's what Epaphras is after. And here's what my toiling and my struggling is after. All of this ministry is to just see you standing mature in Christ. That's the goal of all of it. Is to just see you receiving Christ as your Lord and walking with him till your last breath. Colossae, listen, why am I writing to you? Why have I written to Laodicea and why do I think you guys should swap letters and read it? It's so that you'll be mature in Christ. Why am I sending Tychicus and Onesimus? So that they can encourage you towards being mature in Christ. Why is Epaphras praying and breaking a sweat? Why are these brothers in ministry down to riots and sea and, and in jail cells with me? Why is, why is it that I need you to tell Archippus, who we think is probably stepping in for Epaphras while he's with Paul, why do I need you to tell him, make sure you fulfill your ministry? As you're being interim there in Colossae, make sure you fulfill your ministry. And why am I telling you as I sign off, hey, remember my chains and listen, grace be with you. Why am I commending you to the greatest thing in the world, the grace of Jesus Christ? It's all to this one end, that I might see you, that we might see you mature in Christ. God's work is done by a team of diverse, flawed people who labor to see others mature in Christ. Let me end by saying this. Submar Road, by God's grace, can we not be encouraged and celebrate that we could see the same thing here? See and say the same thing here. Isn't it such a wonderful thing for us to know, look, if we were writing this letter, if I was writing this final section, I'd have names and snapshots and segments and stories to tell you of God's ministry even here. Faithful brothers, fellow workers for the kingdom of God who have been a comfort to me. I could tell you and vouch for you like Paul does for Epaphras that Pastor Binu works hard for you. I could tell you that brother breaks a sweat for you. And he labors to see you mature in Christ. I, I could tell you, as I've said privately and publicly, one of the best gifts of God to my life and ministry and to our church is bringing him here. He's laboring for you.
I could tell you of a brother like Sibi. I could tell you that when I moved here, I had an internal rule that said we will not have an Indian worship leader because I wanted to somehow craft a diverse team. Whether God gave it to me, I was going to force his hand, right? Except I met the brother and he made me break my own rule because we were praying for a godly, gifted, humble God. And in every way, the brother exceeded everything I had asked the Lord for. I could tell you about our deacon Dennis, our utility player. I could tell you, when we tell the brother, we need you to set up, the brother sets up. And when we need you to manage the books, the brother manages the books. When we need you to handle administration, the brother handles administration. When we need you to preach, the brother preaches. Tell me where. And I'm so thankful that God assembles a diverse team. Now, I know we're both Indian, but that's as far as the similarities go. If you, if you talk with Dennis, Dennis is sort of a ready, shoot, aim guy, right? You act and then you think later. later. I am a ready, aim, 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 aim guy. So I think and then I never act. Isn't it wonderful of the Lord that he would bring a diverse team together so that we might actually get some things done and we might actually think about what we get done, Right? Or I think of Brett, who God has assembled to our team. I tell you, every time I'm constantly, and I don't know if you know, I'm always wondering why is he here, right? <laughs> the brother is so brilliant, and he manages our office. He's going to be a PhD scholar somewhere, and the guy literally sets up and makes copies for us. When the women's retreat was happening, I don't know if I told you all this, I had goofed and forgot to send in an insurance form. So the women are getting ready to go to their retreat at 6 p.m. By 5 o'clock, I am almost about to cancel the whole thing because I haven't submitted this one form. At 4.55, I called Brett. And for the next hour, this brother stayed on the phone with an insurance lady. At 5.55, we could go, all right, I guess the women can have a retreat this year. I mean, literally, put everything he had aside, to stay on the phone with some lady in the middle of the country to get our women's retreat going. And listen, we could talk about the same thing for all ministries. I mean, would you just think of what it took for us to get here this morning, for you to sit where you are. It meant that this week, Amy and Sobe, as they do every week, sent out emails and assembled together a, a massive team of volunteers to watch our children in the nursery and Sunday school. I had to manage the schedules and, and figure out people's yeses and noes so that you could literally sit here under the preaching of God's word undistracted. And who they've assembled together is no less than about 70 of you who give yourselves to nursery and Sunday school, who for chunks of five weeks at a time will labor for two services teaching our kids so that they might be mature in Christ. And, and no less than... That is Kurt who comes here early every morning to make sure every chair is right, to pray with us upstairs in the office, and then after every service walks by and just clears communion cups so that it's empty and ready to go for the next service that comes. And then there's Laura who gets here earlier than me every Sunday, and every week that you've eaten communion, it's because Laura's broken that bread and has poured out for those cups. And, and the welcome team that gets here before we all do to make sure that the bathrooms are cleared and it's stocked and ready and people are greeted at the door. Or those guys in the back who press that button every week 
and I bet don't even sing their own songs because they got to make sure that they time it all right. I think of Charles. I've taken vacations. The, the worship leader's taken vacations. For three years, the brother never missed a Sunday because nobody else did audio, and every Sunday he did it. And we sing and hear all that we hear and enjoy all that we enjoy because a diverse team of people come together. Or the band that practices here till God knows when in the night, we should probably change that, but they practice er late into the night and early into the mornings who get here before we all do and labor so that we might undistractedly sing to the glory of God. For every scripture reader that comes and practices, I mean literally, Brett this week, Saju in the second service, I literally told them, there's a lot of funny names you've got to practice all week just to read. Why? So that when you read God's word, it'll be undistracting to the people who hear it. And on and on and on and on we go. I want you to hear, as I thought through this, I had no idea what the application should be. I'm not calling you to get to finally do some work. I'm just encouraging you. I thank God for the work that you do. And I want you to know, sometimes you can go, what is all of this getting after? Right? And, and all I want you to see from the passage is if, if you're in the place going, why am I staying up late to do soul care with these brothers? Why am I making these copies? Why am I wiping off this table upstairs so that the kids have a clear? What, what is all of this getting to? In that moment, I just want to remind you, all this labor is to see others mature in Christ. God has assembled a diverse team of flawed people who labor to see others mature in Christ. That's what we're getting after. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you go, what, what do I have to do with all that? And can I just say one thing to you? Would you consider all that God has marshaled together just for you? I mean, if you're in Colossae and you're not a Christian, at least if you watch this, you go, Paul is in his jail cell and Tychicus took a hundred-mile journey and Onesimus came back to his slave master. Why are they doing all this? It's, it's to see you believe the gospel. God is literally writing narratives and assembling people of every kind, putting them together. Why do we got to accept Mark back? All this work is aimed at just extending the gospel of grace to you. All these people who set up what they do and turn these lights on so that you might hear this morning, Jesus Christ died for your sins, rose again so that you might have life in him. And all the effort and energy of this team is marshaled together to see you mature in Christ. Such is the extravagant love of God for you. Let's pray together.